Hey, we're at Psalm Sunday. I'm excited for that. Uh, so we'll be in Psalm 45. Uh, if you've been with us, you know we're working through the Maskell Psalms. Uh, they are instruction psalms, psalms uh, for the congregation and for teaching. And, and uh, I have been enjoying it. And then especially, I've especially been enjoying the music that comes with it, as Rosie's been uh, joining me in this study. Now, coming up, um, just as a heads up, we will have a couple Kaya guys over the course of this year, a couple of Brandon's up and coming uh, young leaders and preachers that are going to come in and cover some uh, masculine Psalms for us. So uh, that'll be that'll be fun. One of the things that has always been part of the vision on Second Sundays is training young uh, men in the pulpit, giving other men an opportunity to rise up and to get some some pulpit time. Now, there's men in here, too. Uh, you know, that you guys have heard preach and will continue to preach as well. Uh, but praise the Lord for the opportunity to be training uh, up leaders and making disciples in everything that we are doing. And of course, that includes even at the highest levels of, of the pulpit as well. Psalm 45. I agree with, um, you know, what was what was said or alluded to with Linda's comment earlier, doctrine is so important. Maybe those exact words weren't said, but that was the heart. And knowing exactly what God said, to whom, for whom, is, is, is so, so important. Otherwise, you don't even have salvation right. If you don't have the, the, your doctrines right, then you're trying to baptize people for salvation, as in Linda's case, right? Not Linda personally, as in that evangelism case. Um, and, and today, as we get into this, I'm going to give you a quick intro, but then also I'm going to, I'm going to start us with a few minutes. I'm, I'm going to give you some doctrine, because I want to just make sure, I think a lot of you know this, but there's just some doctrine that we need to take a minute to establish. So I think I'm going to give you a little more today. I think it's a lot. I think I'm going to give you a little more than that I've been giving you, I've been trying to, to give you bites as we work through the, the math skills, but today I might give you a little more. Are you guys up for that? You ready for maybe just a little more? We, we might, might get a few extra verses. You might need to write and think. You might, and, and there will definitely be enough that, you know, it's always this way with God's word. There's so much there. And the more I looked at Psalm 45, the more I realized there's no way we can get into this psalm completely, but we'll dip our toes into some different stuff, and there'll be a lot there that you can take home and study on your own, and that too is part of my role, part of Dell's role, not just to give you the word, but to, to give you the tools you need to go into study the word as well, okay? Don't trust what Dell says, don't trust what I say, except it comes from the word of God, and you can go back and verify it. Trust the truth. And let God be true and every man a liar, even the good men, even the pastors, unless it comes out of God's word. So that's part of what we're doing as well. So if we just start with this introduction, again, the part that kind of gets skipped over sometimes, especially in these Psalms, they all have that little intro that comes before verse one, right? And we're like, ah, whatever. Let's just jump to number one. But it says, to the chief musician upon Shushanim, for the sons of Korah, Maskil, 
a song of loves. So number one, you see where the title for this one comes from. The, the theme of this is loving the Lord. Why? Well, because the, the author told you so. They told you right up front that this is a, a song of loves. This is a love song that we are about to read. In fact, even a little further than that, this is a, a wedding song, all right? So if you think back to like, uh, I don't know, like the, the old days where they had the, uh, you know, the, the, they would tell all their stories through song. Like, what'd you call those guys that would go in and like would sing these great tales? Huh? Bard? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those guys, you know, they'd come in and they'd, they were, they would, they would have these wonderful stories and it would all be in a song and it was, ex, it was very entertaining. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of, that's, that's what this is. This is a song uh, of exaltation, a, a song of, uh, of a great love story, a song of a wedding. And so, um, you know, rightfully so, at the end, of course, we'll have a song out of this song because this was, in fact, simply a song. Uh, it was written by the sons of Korah, as you see, and it is a masculine song. Uh, some, some guys call this a royal psalm, which I think is just a term that they made up because there's a few psalms throughout the scripture that have this focus on uh, a kingdom or a kingship that are very royal in nature. So not only is this the, 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 the wedding song, but this is a royal wedding song, as we will see. This is the wedding song of all wedding songs. Now, here's my, my question as I was thinking about that. What is the greatest wedding song ever? Or maybe the greatest wedding singer? No, not the movie. And some of you are like, oh, wedding singer. I know the right answer. I don't know if you want to shout at me, get it wrong. Go ahead. Huh? Nope. That's really the right answer. No, 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 no. Yeah, of course, Song of Psalms. The Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, right? Uh, that is, uh, you know, uh, in truth, the greatest wedding song ever. But uh, as an introduction, and uh, I want to remind you of this wedding song. Do you remember the movie Aladdin? And after he made his first wish, he wants to be a prince, and he comes in, and, and the genie is like his hype man, and he comes in, and he sings this great song, and, and the genie's doing all this, and like it's this big song about how wonderful Aladdin uh, who's now Prince Ali. How wonderful is Prince Ali? And it sings all of his praises. On the next slide, I just put uh, a couple of the lines, but it goes stuff like Prince Ali, fabulous he, Ali Ababwa, right? And it's like, he's fabulous. Mighty is he, strong as 10 regular men. Definitely, right? And he got a little help. Jeannie's like, psh, psh. Prince Ali, handsome is he. Uh, Ali Ababwa, that physique, how can I speak? Weak in the knee, Prince Ali, amorousy. These are how all of those verses started, right? And it's just every verse would go in, it would sing of his nature, of his character. And then as you got towards the end, if you remember it, it's this list of all of like the stuff he has. He's got 75 golden camels and purple peacocks and, and the white monkeys and they're like, and the elephants, he's got elephants or whatever. You remember all of that, right? You guys got, some of you remember, you got kids. You know, Josh knows. Josh knows. Or, yeah, maybe, I don't know. Did Will Smith do it as well in the, uh, the live action? No. You can't compare Robin Williams. All right. 
So there's that's that's what this is, though. So if you think back to that scene, and if you think back to the grandeur of it, and you think back of you know Ali parading in and and all of that's going on and all that's said in that song, that's what that's what I, how I want you to think about this song. Um, when we were actually in, in Pakistan, we went into a castle um, and uh, one of these old giant forts, and they had these steps that were like you know ten or twelve feet long, but only like four inches high so it's like this tiny step and you walked and it took it felt like it would take forever to get up into the castle but they told us those are elephant steps because uh they actually would do like what you saw in aladdin they would parade elephants these these viziers and these great grand people would come into the castle but elephants can't walk normal stairs so they actually had built elephant steps uh that just came to mind i thought you wanted to know that so there's nothing to do well, with what we're doing here, it's just a random, random thought for you. But what I want to start us with as we, uh, before we even really get into this psalm, is I want to start you with a quick uh, doctrinal point. And I want to take a really quick look at the doctrine of the bridegroom and the groom. Okay, bridegroom is a biblical term. Uh, we don't commonly use it. We just shorten it to groom. Uh, that's what it means. That's the man and the woman in a marriage relationship. And, and doctrinal point number one for us is this. Jesus is a bridegroom. Jesus is a bridegroom. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. I'm sorry, 25 to 32. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church. So he immediately starts setting up this, this, this comparison uh, husbands and wives, Christ and church. You get it right here in the very beginning of this. He loved and he gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And some of us are like, without wrinkle, man, I'm getting some of those. It'll be a good day when I get that new body without wrinkle. Okay, or blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it as the Lord, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is, here's how he wraps it up. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So this whole marriage thing, marriage on earth, is a picture of a more important, a more real wedding, a more real uh, marriage relationship, and is that between Christ and the church, where Christ is the bridegroom. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 15. And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and they shall fast. Now, in, in context, Jesus is answering a question, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus said, because they have the bridegroom with them. And he was referring to himself. He is telling you, I am the bridegroom. And I will one day leave. As long as, so side note, this isn't in our teaching today, but fasting should be a part of your life. As long as Christ is not physically present, fasting should be a reality in your life, according to the bridegroom himself, according to Jesus. There will be no fasting in, in heaven because we'll be in his presence. There'll be no need for fasting then. But Jesus is a bridegroom. 2 Corinthians 11.2 2. 
For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband. Church, I have espoused you to one husband. That's a synonym for bridegroom. That I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And so once again, uh, here Paul now is laying out that doctrine for us and, and again letting us know that Jesus is a husband in the church. And this will be the next doctrinal point. You're already getting all of the parts to it, is the bride. Revelation 19:7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. So there is a coming marriage for the Lamb, capital L Lamb. Who is that Lamb? John chapter 1 tells us that it is indeed Jesus. John 1, 29, and the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto them uh, and saith, Behold the Lamb, again capital L, the Lamb of God, or 1 Peter 1, 19, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a Lamb without blemish and without spot. So Jesus Christ is that Lamb. Jesus is a husband. And if you are saved, then he is your husband. Okay? All right. Number two, doctrinal point. The church is the bride. Now, every verse that we just worked through laid that out as well. So we don't need to take a, as many verses to, to dive into that. You revisit Ephesians 5, Christ, church, uh, husband, wife. He lays, lays that out. Same thing as you get to uh, the marriage supper there of, of, of the lamb. The lamb has a bride as well. Revelation 21, 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, and I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. So the lamb has a bride. Now, um, you can dig into that verse, and you're going to see some interesting stuff in the context and the follow-up um, in that one. Um, you can do that on your own. We can talk about that if we need to. Number three, in terms of our doctor points, are we doing good so far? All right, so if you've been through discipleship, I know this is foundational stuff, but not everybody has, and this is a doctrine that I need to make sure that we have right as we dive into this. Number three, God, the Father, is a husband. Now, you see this throughout the Old Testament, and sometimes we forget about this, or we overlook this. Isaiah 54, verse 5. For thy maker is thine husband, Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth shall he be called. Jeremiah 3.14, Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you. This is Jeremiah talking to the nation of Israel. And I will take you one of a city and two of a family and will bring you to Zion. Ezekiel, another prophet uh, to, the, to, the, to the Hebrews, was going to give us a similar idea in Ezekiel 16.8. Now when I pass by thee, and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love, and I spread my skirt over thee, God is speaking, and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee, and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God. And thou becamest mine. You get the same uh, imagery laid out for you in the book of Ruth, where they talk about the, the spreading the skirt and covering uh, as, a, you know, as a promise, as a, as a I, I'm going to, I'm going to be your covering. It's a, I, we will engage in the marriage relationship um, type of a promise. Here God is making that promise with the nation of Israel as well. Uh, Hosea chapter 2, all about the same idea of God being a faithful husband to Israel. 
Uh, and same thing throughout all of these prophets, you're going to see that Israel was an unfaithful bride. Israel was, you know, in terms of brides, the worst of, of the worst, man. Um, not, not a good one to be married to. But here's what God says in Hosea chapter 2, 19 and 20. And I will betroth thee unto me forever. This is God's promise to Israel. I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness. And thou shalt know the Lord. All right. So this is our doctrinal foundation. And I, and I wanted to point that out, one, to make sure that we are able to see ourselves in Psalm 45. When, when we're looking at a wedding song, remember, you as a believer, as, a, as someone who is born again, is, are married to God, to Jesus Christ as your husbandman. So you fit into this psalm. Also, I wanted to point out that, uh, you know, there's a lot of times in Scripture where, where because God is beyond time, and God can see all things. He can give us one, you know, one word, one prophecy, one chapter uh, of scripture, and it can take multiple applications. Is this chapter true for Israel? Yeah. Is this chapter true for me? Yeah. Because God is a, is a, is a husband to Israel because Christ is a husband to me. All right. Now, side note, based on what we just read, uh, especially regarding uh, the father's relationship to uh, Israel in the Old Testament. Let me just give you a couple side notes. Number one, you have to throw away Reformed theology. The idea that God threw away Israel or that the church replaces Israel, that God won't keep his promises to Israel, will, cannot be found anywhere in Scripture. We just read where Hosea said, I will betroth thee to me forever in faithfulness. So the faithful God will be a forever faithful husband to Israel. We don't take those promises. God has promises for us. Okay. Uh, number two, you have to throw away the whole idea of lost tribes. Uh, uh, you know, black Israel, Hebrew Israelites or any other person that would say, well, actually, we're the lost tribe. And there's a lot of people that have claimed it. You know, there's, that's a popular one now, but they're not the only ones that claim to be one of the lost tribes. Anyone who thinks that they are Israel and are not. Uh, if you read God's word and you're faithful to what it says, you won't find that. God made a promise. Even though Israel would be an unfaithful bride, he is the faithful one who holds that relationship. So for there to be lost tribes to say that God was unable to uphold his end of the deal, there are no lost tribes. God knows. Right? God knows where his, his bride is, okay? All right, so you can, you can throw those things uh, away as we move into this. Um, if, it's, if those are doctrines that you wrestle with, we can have deeper conversations about that. Um, that would be wonderful. We can do that. Now, we're going to start, we're just going to start at verse one, and we're going to work through it in steps. And I just want you uh, you can go ahead and put letter D up there, too. Oh, there's your verses. Um, and I just want you to keep that, that, those things in mind as we get into it, is that you have a place in this psalm, and it's this great royal wedding psalm of praise to 
the bridegroom or the husband, right? All right, let's, uh, let's ask for the Lord's help and we'll do it. Lord God, lead us. God, thank you for being a faithful husband unto us. And God, help us to be just like we'll see in the psalm, those who would exalt your name and praise you above all else. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse one, my heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. So we'll start with this idea where where the psalmist introduces and says, his tongue is the pen of a ready writer. And this really brings us into this psalm because here's a guy who's, who's going to who's going to both sing and write the things that God has given him or the things that he knows to be true about the Lord, which brings us to this, this first reality. Am I personally able to sing this song from my heart to the Lord? And it's going to say a lot of stuff. It's going to be like that Aladdin introduction. He's this, he's that, he's got this, he's got that and all of these realities, and it'll feel a little bit like popcorn, like you're just going from space to space to space. Like it's not the only big theme that runs through it is that we have to exalt the husband. We have to exalt the bridegroom. Now, since I am part of the bride, I should be able to look at each one of these verses and consider the reality of what is written and the person, the personality, that that's not the right word, the personal application, what it means to me, and then wrestle with the fact the question of can I, in honesty, sing this back to God? Is are you a ready writer? And and he and he tells us now that it, it comes from the heart. He says that my heart is indicting a good matter. And so the things again that that flow out of our mouth, they they truly bring uh, you know a picture of what is going on on the inside of us, as Luke 6:45 tells us that a good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. Why? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And so here's our first key as we just kind of get going and get started. Most Christians actually cannot sing this song because they don't personally know its truths to be a reality in their life. Most of us can't put our hearts behind the psalm because daily our heart isn't with the Lord. We don't know the realities of what it says. So it's just like Aladdin. It's just like Jasmine. You remember when um, Prince Ali was coming in and it was all marvelous and mighty and fabulous? And what was Jasmine's response? She turned and left. She couldn't sing those praises. She didn't believe any of that. She, like us, as the bridegroom, did not know, as the, as the bride, did not know the groom in that way. And so here's the key, the key, a key reality. If you want your relationship to last, the knowledge is greater than passion in the long run. Okay. 
Now you think about this in terms of a physical relationship, a marriage relationship, and, and early on passion will fuel a fire and it'll burn hot and relationship will be good. You get married and you're passionate and you're passionately in love. But listen, the flames of passion die out. And the reason that, that many couples will struggle five years, eight years, 10 years, 15 years into the relationship is because they did not take the time to get to know their spouse intimately. They thought passion would carry them and it won't carry you for the long haul. But knowledge will. I have a responsibility to know my wife well. To know her, her needs, her hurts, her wants, her dreams, her desires. To know her quirks, her personality, what she enjoys, what she doesn't. I have a responsibility to know how those change over time, and they do. We change, we grow, we mature. God changes us. Life changes us. And I need to be continually in tune with my wife, and she needs to be continually in tune with me to the point where I know her. And when the passion isn't there and, and you don't feel quite as excited as you did when, when it was like, you know, the, those early dates, and you're like, well, it's not quite that exciting anymore. Well, you know what trumps that? What holds you together in the long run? is knowledge of who that person is. And it's the same with Christ. I mean, I pray that you don't lose the joy of your salvation. But the reality is, is a lot of us spend a lot of days not thinking about our salvation. And when we first got saved, man, what a joy that was. That passion may die down. But if you are taking the time to do the hard work of investing in the word, of studying, of reading daily, of, of digging as if for treasure and working in the word. As you do that, the word gets into you and works in you. And you get to know not just like you don't just memorize scripture, but you start to see the heart of God and the character of God. And you start to actually know who he is. And then you get into these situations where life is hard. Things don't seem fair, and there's no passion to it. But I know the character of God, and I know his promises. And so as our relationship presses on, that is what keeps us together. Now, it's hard. It's hard work. It really is. But it's necessary. And so with that, I would say, you know, there's a challenge. Are you, you know, this is a good time of year, New Year. People typically, you know, kind of evaluate life, and make resolutions and, and give up on them before Valentine's Day. It's the typical, typical cycle of, of resolutions, right? I used to work uh, in, in a gym. Uh, you know, I did like... Uh, training and nutrition education and that this time of year was great if you worked in the gym because you made a ton of money everybody came in and just threw money at you threw money at you threw money at you, bought, bought everything and and yeah like valentine's day gym's empty again back down to the normal that's about how long it lasts because it's hard work are you evaluating how you're going to engage with the lord this year 
Have you considered, have you made a plan how you're going to get to know him? For some of you, you're, you come and you're faithful, you're consistent, but uh, you've never been consistent in reading God's word. Maybe it starts as simply as that. I got to read God's word every day. I have to let God speak to me. Maybe you read, but you're not actually allowing God to engage with you. You need to slow down when you read. You need to get a journal. You need to write some notes. You need to pray while you read. Maybe some of you have got the, you know, a, a nice verse a day um, Bible app, and it'll shoot you a verse, and, you know, somebody will give you a couple words about this verse, and you go, oh, that's beautiful. Man, I pr praise God that you've got that, but listen, God wants a deeper walk with you. Maybe you've never read the entirety of God's word. Maybe that sounds daunting. I mean, it's a pretty thick book. It's a lot of reading. I've never really been a reader anyway. And Well, if there's anything we're going to interact with, and if there's anything we're going to put our time to, it's got to be God's heart. Maybe some of you have got to set a goal and say, I got to read the Bible this year, all of it. It's a big goal. You'd be reading roughly four chapters a day, three, three to four chapters a day. But it's not an overwhelming task. But I'll tell you, um, do it with the intent of knowing and, and, and the character of God and, and meeting with God and finding his heart. It will change you. It will build a relationship that will last. And this is critical. And I think especially for our group, I think we're at a time where you know, we're seeing people abandon the Lord. They shouldn't be. And why is that? Because the passion of the new is worn off and they never got to know him and they're not growing with him and they're not walking with him. And the routines, just like the routines of a marriage can become stale and then frustrating and then all those things that you used to think, oh, that's so cute and her. You're like, that, that just drives me nuts. And why can't she just, uh... that's, that's the wrong way. She'd be like, why can't he just pick up his, his shoes. We overlook a lot when the passion is there, but when, man, when we really start to see reality, we got to deal with reality. So we need to know the Lord. So here's the psalmist. My heart is indicting a good matter, and I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer, and he gets right into it. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips, therefore God hath blessed thee forever. So he talks about the beauty uh, of the groom, the beauty of our Savior, how fair he is, how grace is poured into his lips. There's a good study. You can see the grace with which he spoke, that, that Jesus spoke, so that no man uh, could even answer him. And, uh, you know, Jesus had those graceful lips and words. Verse 3, gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, and with, with thy glory and thy majesty, verse four, and in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness, and thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. So already he's, he's hitting a number of different things. The, the fairness of the Lord, like how beautiful he is and then how gracious he is. And then in verse three, he, he shifts to his role as a, as a warrior, 
He's got this sword that he girds on his thigh and, and how glorious he is as a conqueror, as an authority, as a king. And in verse four, his majesty, and you know, he's the strongest 10 regular men, definitely. I think, you know, he, he, he what's that line in Ellen? He, he uh, defeats the galloping hordes, a hundred bad guys with swords, right? That's where, that's where he's at. Whoever wrote Aladdin, they just copied this and put it in modern terms. And in majesty, ride prosperously because of truth. And let's take a minute. As I said, we're just kind of jumping through, but let's talk about majestic prosperity here for just a minute. This verse talks to us uh, about prosperity and notice that in prosperity, in, in this verse in scripture is tied to three things, truth, meekness, and righteousness. You see that in verse four? And in thy majestic, uh, and in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. Those three characteristics will bring prosperity. Now that's contrary to everything that the world would tell you. When you, when you listen to like businessmen, uh, you know, how to gain wealth, how to, how to, you know, prepare for your future, how to advance in your career. It, it never re revolves around meekness and righteousness. It's about being a go-getter. It's about probably stepping on some other people on the way. It's probably about, if we're honest and behind the scenes, you got to cheat your way a little to get to the top, right? It's not about truth. Here's what God is telling us. If you want true prosperity in your life, are these three characteristics, character qualities that you possess that guide your interactions with people, that guide your interactions with work, guide your interactions with your boss? Uh, I, and you're like, but you don't understand my boss. Like he's the most dishonest person ever. Well, you know what God told you to do? Deal with him in righteousness. You have to deal rightly. And in truth and in meekness. Ah, but he's a fighter. Oh, well, okay. The only way to get to get anywhere in my, in my field is to be a fighter. Oh, really? Well, meekness doesn't mean you don't stand up for what's true and what's right. Um, but you don't need to be a fighter. So uh, here's our next, our next key. True prosperity is tied to things that cannot be found in the world. If you're looking for a prosperous life in the things of this world, you won't find it. Now you'll find the world's version of it. You'll find a false prosperity. You'll make more money. You'll have a bigger house. You'll have a nicer car. Typically, you'll have more debt. You see the people with all the nice things. The prosperous ones are the ones that have the most debt. Unless you're really, really prosperous, you know, then you can finally pay off that house. But then you got to buy a jet. Because where do we find truth? Where do we find truth? In the word. That's right, Farrell. Good answer. 
Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Where do we find meekness? Where do we find righteousness? Well, we find it in the word and we find it in the person of Christ. Which again, takes us back to the simple reality. I cannot prosper if I am not in God's presence. And simply put, that's the word of God. If we're going to press into anything this year, let us press into the word of God. If we are going to prosper anywhere, let us prosper in our time we've spent in the presence of the Lord. Let us know that he actually is fairer than all others. Let us know that he is a soldier who can fight and defend us, right? We want to know these things for ourselves. And in thy majesty, ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right uh, hand shall teach thee terrible things. Verse five, thine arrows are sharper in the heart of, thine, of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Still talking about his triumphs and his ability to put down the enemies. Thy throne, O God, verse six, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Let's pause for a second and look at the scepter. Verse six, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Thy scepter, the scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. You know, there's there's quite a bit in this chapter that, that pushes us in, you know, into some Really, the cross-references will take us from Genesis to Revelation. Most of this chapter, you can cross-reference right to the Song of Solomon. I'm not going to make hardly any or any of those cross-references today, but there's a good on-your-own study. The Song of Solomon and Psalms 45, they line up. They're both love songs. To, they're, they're both all about exalting this groom that's coming. But this scepter, this kingdom, this throne that is being established, it was declared in Genesis 49.10, the first time that the word scepter appears in your Bible, it says this, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. God made a promise, all right, uh, 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 to, to Judah uh, as his father is, is on his deathbed and is beginning to lay out the, the blessings and the promises for each of the children of Israel. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be a huge promise. But listen, out of Judah will come the king to rule all kings, an eternal king that will ultimately uh, bring peace, Shiloh. Uh, and unto him shall be the gathering of the people. He will bring peace and he will bring all of the people finally together. Again, a promise to Israel. Um, but a similar promise that is made to us as we one day will be raptured. We will become the, the full body of Christ. We right now are a local body of Christ. We will become the full body of Christ when he comes and he gathers us together. But there is a promise that is made in Genesis that there will be an eternal kingdom with, a, with one ruler over them all out of Judah. Uh, of course, as we run that through scripture, we see that as a prophecy of Christ himself. Numbers 24 and verse 17, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob and a scepter 
shall rise out of Israel. This time it's capitalized. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of, of Shahab. And then we go to Hebrews chapter one and verse eight. It says this, but unto, so this is, Hebrews is just quoting this verse. It's going to say the same thing that we just read here in verse six. But unto the son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. So Hebrews is quoting Psalms 45, and then you keep reading, and he tells you very specifically that it is Christ. That Christ is that scepter that was promised. That Christ is the king. So Hebrews ties into Psalm 45, and, uh, and you know, the... The author there is declaring that Jesus is the bridegroom that was found in Psalm 45. You find Christ in the Old Testament. And therefore, in this context, you find you in the Old Testament. Because Christ is the one being exalted when he switched to the other side and, and you consider the, the bride, that's you. Even in Psalm 45, you were in the heart of God. You're in scripture. That's pretty cool. So he is, so you have to see, uh, you know, Christ, of course, in the scepter in the book of Esther. I'll just drop that out there and you can pick that up. Uh, unless the king extends the scepter, we die. Whew, man, you got to see Christ there. All right. Now here's the key. Here's what I want you to take away out of just this, this verse, this portion. You can't say you truly love God if you do not submit to his authority. Remember, this is a song of love. And my prayer is that I would be able to sing every one of these verses to him. And my prayer is that you, from your heart, would be able to sing every one of these verses to the Lord. Listen, the same thing is true in a marriage relationship. You don't truly love your husband unless you're willing to submit to his authority. And that's a hard thing. But that's a truth. Because that's the way God designed it. What does that mean practically? Well, it means the one, the one who gets the final word is really the one that you're exalting. And if every time God speaks, you've got a, yeah, but, well, uh, if every time your, you know, your husband speaks, you got to have the final word. You know why that is? because you don't trust and submit to the authority that he has in your life. Have you ever studied to be quiet, to let God speak? And my response is, I'll just be quiet. I don't get to fight his authority. So we don't truly love him unless he is truly the authority in our life. Um, we'll keep going. Verse, uh, verse eight, all thy garments smell of myrrh and aloe and cassia out of the ivory palaces, whereby they have made thee glad. So, um, th this is, uh, you know, you see this again in Esther, you see this idea of, uh, of, of garments that are perfumed and smelling good. So it's shifting away from some of those other character qualities of them now, more specifically towards a groom. You, you would, you would, prepare this way to go in and meet either a king or a husband uh, or the or the groom 
king's daughters, verse 9, were among thy honorable women. So here's your bridesmaids. They're all king's daughters. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. That's you, the queen, the one that will be married to the king. And God's desire is that you would be clothed in beautiful, white, golden garments as well. Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thine ear. Forget not or forget also thine own people and thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. Now here's the, the next thing I want to talk about for just a minute, and we'll be done. Desired beauty. The king, it says here, is desiring the beauty of the bride. Now thus far, it's all been about the beauty and the majesty and the splendor of the, of the king, of the groom, but now it's shifted. And listen, this is us. And this is crazy that the almighty God would desire my beauty. But this is what he wants. He wants us to be beautiful before him. He wants us as the bride to stand next to him as the king and queen and to be clothed in gold and, to, and, and, and white and linen and to be pure and beautiful before him so that he can brag on his bride and show him off. That doesn't make sense to me. That almighty God wants to say, look at my bride. Me? There's a couple you know, realities here. Again, that, that are hard in terms of uh, our personal relationships, but may also be, and definitely also hard in terms of our relationship to God. Forget thine own people and thy father's house. This was the command that God gave from the beginning in Genesis 2, 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh. Same thing was said by Paul in Ephesians 5, 31. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave uh, and shall be joined unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh. A wife that does not, uh, you know, a wise wife does not compare her husband to her father. You have to leave that relationship. You got to cut that. Well, my dad would have done it this way. That's got to die. Don't make your husband live as, as a, in the continual shadow of who your father was. You know, good or bad. You had a good father. Man, pray, I'm praising God that my wife doesn't do that because my, both of my fathers, my father and my father-in-law, they're handymen. They can come in here and fix anything. If Rosie's dad, if my father-in-law walked in here, like he'd start sheetrocking that right now, and it'd probably be done before the end of this sermon. You wouldn't even hear it get done. He's so good. And you walk into my house, and like there's this hole in, in my kid's ceiling right above their bed that I put there, and it hasn't been fixed in years. If she compared me to him, we'd have a hard relationship. Duct tape it again. That's what I tell my son. I go, what do you mean there's a problem? Just put more duct tape on it. It's aluminum foil and duct tape. She knows her dad would have it done in 12 minutes. $12. Done. A wise wife makes her husband her primary family relationship as well. Now, I'm not saying you lose everyone else, but listen, your mom or your sister is no longer your primary counselor or confidant. You need to go to your husband. Husbands, your, your boy, 
from college, we, from way back in the day. He's not your primary counselor or confidant. You need to go to your wife if you have an issue with your wife. I don't go first to somebody else to complain about my wife. I don't talk bad and make my wife look bad out in public because it's fun or funny. She is never the butt of my jokes. I cut all of the other relationships in this world to make sure that that one is the priority. And the same is true of my God. Because you want your husband to see you as beautiful. You women, you know this, you want to be desired. And once that passion of the early marriage wears off, you still want him to look at you. You've had some kids. Life has changed. Everything's changed. I'm not the person I was when I was 22. And you want your husband to look at you and be like, man, but you're sexy. Right? You want your husband to desire your beauty. Well, then give him your heart completely. Because when he knows he has your heart, and that's a beautiful thing. And the Lord is the same way. He's not looking at you with your scars and your mistakes and all the stuff that you were and all that you've been through. He's like, give me your heart now completely. Proverbs 31, 11, the heart of her husband does safely trust in her. This is the virtuous woman. So that he shall have no need of spoil. This is what you want. You want your husband to safely trust in you. And you want your king your God to safely trust in you. Here's your key. You cannot say you love the Lord if you're holding on to your past. You got to let go of all of it. And the chapter wraps, she shall be brought unto the king and raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her shall be brought unto thee with gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought and they shall enter the king's palace instead of, instead of thy fathers shall be thy children whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. You see the shift. We're, we're leaving the past and God's promising a new future. Your children will replace the fathers and I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. God loves you so much that he wants to give you a future that is greater than anything that has already passed. In your relationship to your spouse, in your relationships in, the, in this life, and more importantly, most importantly, in your relationship to him. The best days of your relationship with Christ are only behind if you've given up on it, because he hasn't. He is the faithful husband. And we are out of time.